0: Thank you, Chris and Dawn, for leading us this morning with your team, and we're going to go from two people leading us in worship on this platform this morning to over 400 next weekend at the Ford Center downtown, and uh, so if you are here next weekend at 10 o'clock, you're going to be awfully lonely. There will be tumbleweeds blowing through this place next Sunday. All of us will be down at the Ford Center downtown for a great, great Easter celebration. I hope you are looking forward to it as much as I am. Well, once again today we are focusing on a passage from the Old Testament that whispers the name of Jesus. And once again today we have prophetic words that were written hundreds of years before an event, words that describe the event, in unmistakable detail. So how is it that this just keeps happening in Scripture? The only explanation is that the fingerprints of Almighty God, the Lord of heaven and earth, are all over biblical prophecy, and they are all over human history. And this weekend, our truth source is the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And here Zechariah whispers the name of Jesus foretelling what we call the triumphal entry. And this is Palm Sunday. Churches all across the world are celebrating Palm Sunday and acknowledging this event. But most of them are living in the Gospels this weekend. We're going back to Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 where it was foretold, where the name of Jesus was whispered. But before we get into the, t- to the text this morning, I want to I push pause. Because I think we might need a little bit of the backstory. I'm just guessing that most of us are not in the book of Zechariah on a daily basis. So let me give you a little bit of what was going on then when this was written. Historically, here's what was happening. The Jews had just been freed from Babylonian captivity where they had been for seventy years. They were liberated to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, which was in blackened ruins. And so God called the prophet Zechariah to spiritually restore the nation and to unite the nation in this reconstruction project. And the people responded well. They started very strong, but after a while they became distracted and they began to build houses for themselves. They laid the foundation of the temple, but then walked away from it, and for fifteen years it sat idle. The project did not progress. So Zechariah's message was a call for God's chosen people to repent and to refocus on this task. Now, that's what's going on historically. I want you to know a little bit about the book of Zechariah and how it's broken down It's divided into into four separate sections. In the first section, Zechariah charges the people to learn. This is in the early part of chapter 1. God calls the people to learn from the consequences visited on other nations because of their hard hearts toward God. He didn't want His people to repeat their sins. The German philosopher Hegel wrote, if history teaches teaches us anything, it teaches us... That history doesn't teach us anything. That's the way philosophers think, that's the way they talk, they're weird. (laughs) But it's true. Well then, the next section of the book of Zechariah, He warns them to obey, chapter latter part of chapter 1 through chapter 6, there are a series of eight prophetic visions given to Zechariah to encourage the people to be faithful to obey, to be diligent to serve the Lord. And as a result, God promised His protection from their enemies, He promised that His presence would be among them, and He promised that He would bless them. And then thirdly, He teaches them to love. Now this is chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Zachariah. God confronts the people about their tendency to substitute form for content. Now God has always wanted the hearts of people. He doesn't he doesn't want ritual and tradition. He is not interested in fasting and feasting unless it contributes to the development of a heart for him. And that was missing in Israel. Well then finally In chapters 9 through the end of the book, 9 through 14, he encourages them to hope. Zechariah lifts the veil on the future. And chapter 9 to chapter 14 is all prophetic. And he reveals that God's going to establish His kingdom on earth one day when the Messiah enters the city of Jerusalem the final week of His life. The humble king introduced in the text of Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, is unmistakably Jesus Christ. And with His coming, the humble king brings joy. Right there, in the first part of the ninth verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! Now, Zion is just another name for Jerusalem, so Zechariah is repeating himself here for emphasis. And the word daughter here is a reference to the people of God, the offspring of the holy city. And you may say, well, okay, that kind of misses me, doesn't it, because I am not a daughter of Zion, I am not a daughter of Jerusalem. There's no reason for me to get excited about this, is there? Well, take a look at Galatians in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. It says that as Christ followers, Jerusalem is the mother of us all. So do not count yourself out here. We, too, are daughters of Zion. We are daughters of Jerusalem. But the point we need to grasp here is that God's final goal, God's plan for His people then and now, is joy. In fact, it is great joy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. And the kind of joy that God has for us is shouting joy. Have have you ever been so overjoyed that that you have just shouted out loud? That's the word that's used here, and it has to do with a trumpet blast. Thank you, Asher, for that sound effect. (laughs) And friends, we need, to, we need to show our joy more than we do. I want you to take a look at some pictures of some, some Christian bands. Now, I want you to know that I really like these guys. I do. I really like their music. But oh, how I wish whoever it was that took their picture would have said, all right, boys, now, all together, cheese. Cheese. They they look like they got a hold of some bad Chinese food the night before. (laughs) Let's be aglow with the Spirit. But what about you? When you're sitting in your car in traffic. What about you when the telephone rings over the dinner hour and it's a telemarketer? What about you when it's the kids trying your patience at the end of a a busy day? What about when you go out to eat and the server is slow? Or what about when a teacher frustrates you? Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice always in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. There it is in Philippians chapter 4, the same kind of double emphasis, commanding us to rejoice, to be joyful. I think it's important for us to see this as a command to be obeyed and not a feeling that we necessarily have. I know there are times when we don't feel like being joyful. We don't feel like rejoicing. But we need to be careful that that does not become characteristic of us, this kind of, this kind of blank stare, this kind of pencil-thin expression on our lips. As Christ followers, there ought to be this this joy. The humble king brings joy. This is God's desire for us. It is His destiny for His children to rise above, to soar beyond the misery and the grief and the stress and the sadness in this world. And do you hear the name of Jesus being whispered here? When Dr. Luke provides an eyewitness report of what actually would happen hundreds of years later in the triumphal entry, here's what he says, Luke 19, verse 36, "...as Jesus went along, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices." This kind of irrepressible joy needs to characterize the people of God. We should be aglow with the Spirit of God. And I'm not going to press this further because next Lord's Day, Easter Sunday, our annual celebration of resurrection at the Ford Center. Come prepared to rejoice greatly, even shout praise if you want to. It's a little too distracting for our worship center here, but it won't be there. You can just pretend next weekend that you are at a U of E Purple Aces basketball game or a USI Screaming Eagles basketball game. A humble king brings joy. Let His joy break out among His people. Well, the humble king also brings righteousness and peace. That's in the latter part of verse 9. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now the people lining the road into Jerusalem had heard about Jesus. They had probably seen Jesus do some wonderful miracles. The most dramatic had just happened two miles outside of town in Bethany, right before Jesus came into the city when He raised Lazarus from the dead. And this was not done privately as when He raised from the dead the daughter of Jairus. The Bible details that there were many people present in Bethany to comfort the sisters in their loss. This was a well-known family. This was a well-respected, well-loved family. There were a lot of mourners there when Jesus showed up too late, too late for the sisters, but right on time for what He intended to do. And Lazarus is not lying in a back bedroom, been dead a few minutes. Or a few hours. He had been dead four days. The community funeral had already happened. He was sealed in a tomb, and his sisters said that he would not smell very good if he was bothered right now. King James Version said, By now he stinketh. Well, so because of the Because of the widespread reports of signs and wonders, many recognized Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Kings. He said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth. And somebody said it's a good idea. He said, Lazarus, come forth, because if he had just said, come forth, every grave in Palestine would have opened up and yielded her dead. The people who were there lining the streets of Jerusalem believed that Jesus was coming to liberate them from Roman rule. And what do you do when someone like this arrives in town? Why, you have a parade. You roll out the red carpet. And since they didn't have a red carpet, they they just took off their garments and laid them in the way. And they cut palm branches and laid them in the way. The crowd was ecstatic. They were laughing and cheering. So what kind of man do you see sitting on that donkey?" Well to some, uh, Jesus is kind of effeminate and weak. He is gentle and meek, kind of like a male version of Mother Teresa, kind of like a Mr. Rogers with a beard. To others, to others, He is aloof, He is ethereal, He is distant and passive, probably the way they see their own fathers. People then saw him like we see William Wallace. Remember him, hero of the film Braveheart? He's just a warrior, hero, liberator of Scotland in the 1300s. Wallace was the first one to defy the English oppressors. And when Wallace comes on the scene, Scotland's already been under the iron fist of England for centuries, and King Edward the was the worst of all, ruthless and oppressive. And when the showdown is at hand, William Wallace rides in. He's got blue war paint on his face, and he is ready for battle. He is ready to win Scotland's freedom. He is ready to usher in a new era of peace. So, is Jesus more like Mr. Rogers or is he more like William Wallace? Well, I think it kind of depends. If you're a leper and you're an outcast and no one will touch you because you're unclean, if you're an orphan child, if you're an old woman with a debilitating health condition, if you're a grieving father, then Jesus is tender, He is kind, He is merciful, and you are comforted. But if you are a Pharisee, if you're a religious phony, watch out. If you seduce the morally weak, if you victimize the vulnerable, if you're determined to live a life of immorality... If you set yourself against Jesus, like this professor, this uh, DeAndre Poole, Florida Atlantic University, this past week, he required his class to write the name of Jesus on a piece of paper, put it on the floor, and then stomp on it. Now, if you're doing that, you're picking a fight, you will not win. And by the way, one student in that class... Ryan Rotella refused to do it. And he was suspended from the class. More evidence of the flagrant anti Christian bias in many of our higher educational institutions. Jesus is tough and tender, or tender and tough. Look at Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 14. I think this passage reveals the tender and tough nature of Jesus. Here's what's happened there's a woman who was seriously handicapped. She has been bent double for eighteen years, so she, she, she walks like, like that. She walks like that. And Jesus touched her and said, "'Woman, be healed of your sickness.'" And immediately she could stand up straight But the Jewish leader in charge of the synagogue was angry about it. Jesus had healed on a Sabbath day, and He was indignant. And Jesus locked in on him and He said, You hypocrite. And He went on to publicly shame this respected religious leader for his lack of compassion for the woman. You see the tender and the tough side of Jesus right there in those four verses. Now, this Pharisee would not have considered Jesus to be very nice. Some of you have been watching the Bible on television the past few weeks, so you know that the Egyptians did not think that Moses was very nice. And the inhabitants of Jericho did not think that Joshua was a nice guy, and the Philistines didn't think that Samson was very nice, and Jezebel didn't think Elijah was a nice guy, and Herod didn't think John the Baptist was a nice guy. Because when you take a stand for God, when you take a stand for what's right and true, it's not considered considered very nice today Make no mistake about it, Jesus was the Lamb. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but He's also the Lion, the Lion of Judah. And I think Dorothy Sayers is right when she writes, the church has very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, making him a fitting household pet for pale pastors and pious old ladies." Now as a pale pastor, I take a little bit of offense at that, but <laughs> but I get what she's saying. Jesus, He's no limp-wristed altar boy with His hair parted down the middle who constantly avoided confrontation and got Himself killed because He had no way out. He worked with wood and he commanded the loyalty of government officials and business owners and dock workers and fishermen. He's the Lord of hosts. He is the captain of angel armies. Yet he's kind and compassionate. He's loving and forgiving. But don't be fooled. He's also strong and fierce. He is triumphant and victorious. He is like Aslan the lion in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. He is not safe, but he is good. And he's not a Nero who fiddles while Rome burns, and he's not a Saddam Hussein who lives in lavish luxury while his people languish in poverty, and he's not an Ayatollah Khomeini that shames and intimidates his citizens. Jesus brings joy and righteousness and peace, and he inspires songs from children in the blind sea and the lame walk, and the deaf hear, and the lepers are cleansed, and the poor have the good news preached to them." Look at the description of Jesus right out of our text. It says, He is righteous, having salvation. Zechariah identifies the Messiah as standing on the side of what's right. Oh, for more leaders who would stand on the side of what's right. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The humble king will bless those that the world has cursed, and he will elevate the righteous, and they will rejoice in their salvation. And he will judge those who have chosen to stand apart from him in unrighteousness. So, is there something in your life right now you know is not right? Is there any area of darkness in your heart? Is there any hardness toward the Lord in you? Will you make it right? Will you resolve to do it? when He speaks to you in moments like this. The real value of hearing the Word of God is not in what you remember Wednesday morning after you were in church on Sunday. It's what you are convicted to do while you're sitting under it. When something connects, the Holy Spirit connects with your will. And at that intersection, you decide something is going to change. He is righteous, having salvation. He's also gentle, writing on a donkey. The king is coming as a gentle peacemaker. He's strong, but not in the sense of being bossy or cruel. He's humble. He's not arrogant or domineering. He's riding on a donkey. Now what does that mean? The donkey reinforces the idea of him being lowly and meek. In the Old Testament, the kings occasionally rode donkeys, but not when they were going to war. Then they rode war horses. The donkey is a peacetime animal, but in fact, Jesus isn't even riding on a donkey. He's riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There would not be a more unimpressive animal to mount than a colt, the foal of a donkey. His feet probably weren't very far off the pavement. Do you get it? Do you get it? He could not humble Himself in coming to us, coming into His kingdom any more than He did. And He didn't come into Jerusalem to exploit people or to assert His own ego. He came to make peace as a humble king. Look at Luke chapter 19, 41 and 42. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. This is when Jesus is coming down into the city. He wept over the city of Jerusalem as He approached Jerusalem the city just before His triumphal entry, and it's because He wanted them to have His peace, a peace that passes understanding, but the Jews wouldn't have it. They resisted it. And what a good day, what a good day to think deeply about whether you have the peace of God down deep where you really live. This is why the humble king came to make peace by the blood of His cross. He doesn't want there to be any dividing wall between you and Him. That's what Ephesians 2.14 says. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. If you are sitting in church this morning and you do not have the peace of God ruling in your heart, don't close your eyes to it. Don't miss it, don't resist it. He's laid down His life so He can draw you to Himself. And He doesn't want hostility or indifference to stand in the way. Will you hear the humble king say to you today, if you only knew, what would bring you peace? He wants to bring us His joy. He wants to bring us His righteousness and His peace. And finally, the humble King brings Himself. Look at verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Please, Do not miss this. The king who came to bring us all his joy and his righteousness and his peace. This king who came in humility into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, riding on the colt of a donkey. He now reigns in heaven and he commands that his joy and his righteousness and his peace go to all nations. His reign begins in Jerusalem, but then to Judea. Then to Samaria, and finally the ends of the earth. This humble king is not for us in America alone. There is no people or tribe or tongue or nation that is excluded from God's desire to extend the loving reign of Jesus to the whole earth. Therefore, I can say on the authority of God's word that he is reaching out to you today. He loves joy and He hates despair in your life, and He loves righteousness, and He hates sin in our lives, and He loves peace, and He hates conflict in our lives, and He loves to draw us near. And He hates it when there's distance, when there's estrangement, when there is bitterness, when there is unbelief, when there is disinterest that separates us from Him. He wants to break down the dividing wall, whatever it is, that keeps us from His joy, that keeps us from His righteousness, that keeps us from His peace, that keeps us from His presence. Two prophetic verses in our text today, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, verse 9. Verse 9 was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming when He entered Jerusalem to establish His loving reign as King of kings and Lord of lords from the cross to all who would believe in Him. Verse 10 will be fulfilled at His second coming when He will return to extend His loving reign over the whole earth and to all humanity. Philippians two nine. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to give you one last incentive to make a move toward Him. Make a move into His church today. The text says He will extend His rule from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. The humble King. Will one day come back to the earth and rule over all nations. And there will be a judgment day. As some even though some are unwilling to acknowledge it, even though some resist it like crazy, there will come that day. And only those who have voluntarily submitted to the humble king, only those that that have come to him and have peace with Him on His terms, not their terms, His terms. Until that day, the humble King Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, commands all people everywhere to believe in Him, to repent of sin, to be united with Him in Christian baptism, to begin a new life. And clearly, you and I are included. We're included. In this Word from God, it's supremely important, supremely important, above all other things in your life, that you be right with Him. We await your decision this morning, the opportunity to counsel with you, to pray with you about any felt need that you have this morning as we stand together as we worship.